It's funny how that happened. I thought I'm going to have to get up and get everybody kind of calm down. I was just <laughs> good to see everyone. We have visitors with us tonight, and we always appreciate visitors. Well, if you come back anytime, you can be with us. If you'd like to mark your songbook, number 781 will be our first song tonight. 781. Uh, don't have any updates on our sick. Um, I was asked to announce that James Denton Huddleston Sr. had passed away. Uh, junior? I'm sorry. Junior had passed away. I think some of you here may remember him from time past and stuff. So I wanted to announce that. Again, remember our gospel meeting coming up starting next Sunday. Our brother Jonathan Medley will be leading the singing for that. Uh, also, uh, ladies, no but ladies Bible class this Tuesday evening. Tonight we have Andrew Scott will be uh, bringing her lesson for us again, and we're looking forward to that. Andrew's been bringing us a lesson in a series here on the crucifixion, and we're looking forward again for that tonight. The men now to take part in the service tonight to lead the singing, Eddie Frizzell, reading the scripture, Joy Frizzell, leading us in her first prayer, Kel Burchett, and at the close of the service, Wendell Smallwood will dismiss us. Seven hundred and eighty-one. <clears throat> Wonderful story of love. Tell it to me again. Wonderful story of love. Wake the immortal strain. Angels with rapture announcing. Shepherds with wonder receive him. Sinner, oh, won't you believe him? Wonderful story of love. Wonderful, 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 wonderful story of love, wonderful story of love, though you are far away. Wonderful story of love, still he doth call today, calling from Calvary's mountain, down from the crystal's bright fountain, he from the dawn of creation, wonderful story of love. Wonderful, 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 wonderful story of love, wonderful story of love, Jesus provides a rest. Wonderful story of love For all the pure and blessed Rest in those mansions above us With those who've gone on before us Singing the rapturous chorus 
wonderful story of love, wonderful, 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 wonderful story of love. <clears throat> Next song, number 277. First and third verses. I have heard of a land on the far away strand. Tis a beautiful home of the soul. Built by Jesus on high, where we never shall die. Tis a land where we'll never grow old, never grow old, never grow old, in a land where we'll never grow old, never troubles and trials are on. All their sorrow will win and their voices will blend with the loved ones who've gone on before. Never Next song will be number 223 after scripture reading and prayer. The scripture reading tonight for Brother Andrew's lesson comes from John chapter 19, verses 14 through 16. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. If you're able, would you please stand for the prayer? Let's all bow and pray together. Most gracious God in heaven, Father, we 
humbly bow this evening with thankful hearts. So very thankful for the countless blessings that are bestowed upon each one of us, Father. For we know that our our needs are taken care of and, and we're so grateful, grateful for that. We're thankful for the strength and the health that allowed us to gather here once again on this first day of the week for another another hour of worship. We look forward to this time and, and just thankful that we can participate, read passages from the Bible that we have, sing songs of praises to you, and, and sit and enjoy a lesson that, that will educate us and, and further grow our faith in you. We're thankful for the congregation that meets here, the love that it has for one another and the love that it has for you. Father, we're thankful for the the visitors who made the decision to assemble with us tonight, and we're we're thankful that they're here. I'm thankful for the leadership of this congregation. We pray for that. There have been some who have been mentioned on the sick list recently, and some that are improving. We're we're always thankful for for good news. We know that there are some here and that we're connected with who have heavy hearts due to the loss of a loved one. We pray that there are brighter days ahead for them. We just pray that they know that that pain on this earth is temporary and that, that we just hope that one day we can sit at your feet in heaven. We ask that you will watch over this congregation tonight watch over Andrew as he stands before us and, and presents a lesson from the Holy Holy Word. We're thankful for the Bible because we know that as long as we read it, understand it, and always keep our eyes on you, that we have the hope of eternal life in heaven. Heavenly Father, we, we love you, and we're so thankful that you love us. And it's this prayer we offer through your Son, Jesus the Christ, holy name. Amen. Two hundred and twenty-three. <clears throat> Often I'm hindered on my way, burdened so heavy I almost fall. Then I hear Jesus sweetly say, Heaven will surely be worth it all. Heaven will surely be worth it all. Worth all the sorrows that here befall. After the life with all of its strife, heaven will surely be worth it all. Many the trials, toils, and tears, many a heart he may hear upon. But the dear Lord so truly said, Heaven will surely be worth it all. Heaven will surely be worth it all. Worth of the 
sorrows that here befall after the life with all of its strife heaven will surely be worth it all tolling and pain i will endure till i shall hear the death angel call jesus has promised and i'm sure heaven will surely be worth it all heaven will surely be worth it all oh, was that here before after the life with all of its strife heaven will surely be worth it all be seated please song of invitation be number 538 Heaven will surely be worth it all. That's a excellent song with a powerful message for those that are Christians, knowing someday that a home in heaven will be ours. Tonight, as we turn our attention to our lesson, Lessons from the Crucifixion Part 4 will be that tonight. It'll be a continuation of a series of lessons that, of course, we are looking at on the last Sunday night of the month. And it's so good to, that we can each assemble again tonight in the way that we are. And as a reminder, our gospel meeting again is a week, one week from today. So this upcoming week, may you keep those efforts in your prayers and be inviting those that, that desperately need to hear the Word of God. Our slide of introduction tonight, as noted before we are continuing this study, uh, the first lesson we looked at was, of course, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord's Supper. We, we applied those things to our lives. And we also looked at the next lesson, the trial and the injustice of it. And last month, we looked at the church that the Lord, of course, promised to build. And in his conversation with Pilate, he made this statement, My kingdom is not of this world. We talked about what it takes to be a citizen in that kingdom and what that demands of us in our Christian lives every day. So tonight we will be looking at the scourging, the physical condition of our Savior, and the love of God, His love of sending His Son to die for us. We'll be applying the crucifixion, those events, to our lives and ask ourselves how are we living in light of those things. And also we'll turn our attention to the foreknowledge of God by way of prophecy as it was revealed in the Old Testament and appreciating the love of God as he's shown that for the human family. And in that we'll also notice and appreciate the teachings and examples from our Lord even in the most dire of circumstances that he was in. This next slide is my attempt 
to look at the charge that was given. So if you would be turning to John chapter 19, that's where we'll spend the biggest portion of our lesson at tonight. John, the 19th chapter. Upon turning there, we'll notice most of the chapter in its entirety and as the events uh, play through that chapter. If you notice in verse 1, we'll begin reading there. And notice with me, we'll read verses 1 through 17, please. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 17. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then, then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith, saith unto him, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again unto the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then, then saith, saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou, speakest thou not unto me? Knowest, know, knowest that thou not have I the power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, sat him down in the judgment seat in a place that is called pavement, but in the Hebrew, Galbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then delivered, him, then delivered he him therefore unto him to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth unto the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Going back to chapter or verse 1 in that chapter. Going back in our minds, we all remember the scene well. Jesus had been... Through the trial, he had been given the, the, the sentence of crucifixion. But with that Roman custom for the Jews, of course, they, he, brought, he was brought before them with him. And also Barabbas, but the Jews and all the, the, the crowd that was there condemned Jesus and released Barabbas. 
And from then, they led Jesus away, and they scourged him, as verse 1 indicates. And when we consider the scourging, it was not something that was a light matter in the Roman Empire. And this next slide is my attempt to show you what likely it would have looked like. Now, Jesus being the victim in this case would have been tied to either a low post or a tall post, as it were, and his clothing would have been stripped off of them. And either way, his back, the back of his legs, his shoulders, and the sides where his ribs would have been located were exposed. And this equipped Roman soldier, highly trained Roman soldier, who likely delighted in this, this type of torture, took a flagrant, as you can see in the picture, as it was called, and, beginning, and began to well away at Jesus. Now typically this was a whip. It had four to five, sometimes more cords on it. And it had pieces of bone, glass, sometimes metal, but they were intended to inflict wounds and massive harm to the body. And pretty soon, as you can tell from, from the picture, from the artist's perception here, there would be blood in rather significant amount. <coughs> now, under the, the Roman law of Judaism, 39 stripes, we, we were told, was all that was typically administered because it could never go beyond 40. But when we come to the Roman law and under their executions, as it were, there was no limit to how many stripes was delivered. It could have lasted 30 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe even close to an hour. We, we don't know. The scriptures do not give that information for us. But maybe it was until the Roman soldier got too tired to do it anymore. But either way, this would have caused deep trauma to the body, as we are told by those that examine, by historians that examine these types of things. Severe bruising to the lungs would have taken place. And once a specific area is hitting so many times with that glass and the bone and the metal, large chunks of flesh would have been ripped away from our master's body. And may we always keep in mind that at any moment, he could have stopped this. He could have called those 12 legions of angels that he has, as he had already described. He would have been taken back to heaven. <coughs> but for you and I, we would have no hope of salvation. And in doing this, these, these Roman soldiers, as they prepared for crucifixion and they prepared for this, they made a public spectacle of it. These executions carried out were a public display of, of a way of showing the Roman authority in that empire. It, and they wanted their authority to be known for anybody that caused insurrection, that broke their law. They wanted that deeply embedded in everybody's mind, line and thinking where they would not cause insurrection or try to stir up in the Roman empire. 
going back to that previous slide, the text goes on to say this in verse 2, the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now, and they also put on him a purple robe and they continued to insult him as verse 3 continues to go on to say, and once they continued to insult him with the purple robe, now keep in mind purple was the typical color that kings wore, and they put the crown of thorns on him as they were saluting a king. They thought of, in their minds, a king that was just another person, a king that was a fake, but we all know better than, than that line of thinking. This was the Son of God, and he was the king, he is said to be king of kings and lord of lords. And once the crown of thorns was platted on his head, the text goes on to say that they would hit him over the head, they would smote him with their hands, and in another gospel account's record, they would spit on him. And that would no doubt drive those crowns of thorns into the head and scalp of our master. Now the blood coming from his shoulders, his back, his sides, and now his head. Innocent blood that he was covered in. But something interesting is noted, continuing on in verses 6 through 15, is Pilate's demeanor in this scene of events. Pilate had already made the statement that he found no fault in Jesus. And it's interesting to note that from history, Pilate, as been noted by historians, was a rather ruthless individual. He wanted his authority known to be known very well in that empire in Judea. But it appears here that Pilate did have a sense of justice to him when it was given to see that the law was given in a fair way. And we may remember that Pilate's wife also had a dream to have nothing to do with this just man as the dream was in, as she interpreted the dream to him. Now we know that Pilate, Pilate as many other Romans, they did not serve the God of heaven as you and I do. They had their own form of gods and deities that they served. But it's interesting to note, to note from history as it's recorded that they, do, they did take their dreams rather seriously. Now I say this carefully because the scriptures do not specifically say this. With the dream that, his, that Pilate's wife had and piecing these things together as we're told, it could be that that dream and Jesus' demeanor and Jesus' situation that in Pilate's line of thinking could have been from one of the gods that they served. Now, we all know that's not true in the, in the Christian life because we know where God came from. He was the second member of the Godhead, and he was the Son of God. We all appreciate and love that great truth. But continuing on, in 
Jesus also has a conversation with Jesus. Or I'm sorry, with, with Pilate in verse 11. Pilate asked again where he was from. Whence art thou, in verse, verse 9 says. But it's interesting that Jesus gave him no answer. And then Pilate talked about his power that he had. And in verse 11, in the condition that he was, still able to, to teach, he says, Thou couldest have, have no power at all except against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. It appears here Jesus briefly dips back into the moments that just had occurred not many hours prior to that from Judas delivering him over to, be, to, to, begin, to the chief priest. And continuing on, Jesus, uh, Pilate then therefore would take Jesus to the judgment seat, again to the individuals, and continuing to talk with them about his situation, attempting once again to try to, to free him, to let him go. But, they, but the Jews heap a, a great deal of, of, of of stress upon Pilate, it would seem, about his relations with Caesar in verses 12 and 13. And then we all know that Pilate consented. He consented to the people and turned him over to be crucified. And next, a cross, the cross beam comes before us. In verses 17 and following. Now when the cross beam was brought in that, on that occasion, now we must keep in mind here that typically the vertical post typically stayed in the ground as history records for us. And the cross beam that was constructed was carried by the criminal or by the victim here as, as Jesus was in this situation. And also, during that journey to Golgotha, we see the role of Simon played out in Mark chapter 15, verses 21, as that records for us, as he was compelled to carry the crossbeam for a fair part of the distance from, from the journey, for the journey to Golgotha. Now, we're not given any, any detail in Scripture why, but maybe we can speculate due to the loss of blood that Jesus had suffered from, Maybe he was becoming too weak to carry it, but we simply don't know. But, he, but, Simon, but Simon was compelled by those Roman soldiers to carry that for a fair part of the journey. Also, we're noted from the record in Luke chapter 23, 28 through 31, some of the women that were Jesus' followers, were weeping over his, his demeanor and his situation. And Jesus proclaimed there a powerful truth that would soon be, be, be 
would occur in that area of Jerusalem not many years into the future. And it was the destruction of Jerusalem that was about to occur in 70 AD. Again, to note for us, to be in the condition he was in and still able to teach, to still able to predict what the truth, what events were going to happen in history, is truly a remarkable thing, isn't it? In Mark chapter 15, also in verse 23, that account, when they arrive at the place of Golgotha, they offer Jesus wine mingled with myrrh. Now some have, over the years, have studied this, and that was a type of deadening, deadening agent, uh, a numbing medicine, if, you, if, you, if we could call it that, in our, our, in our present day language. But that text reveals to us that Jesus received it not. And friends, that should overwhelmingly cut us to the heart because he felt every whip of the flagrant, every pound of the hammer as those nails were driven into his hands and feet. And upon arriving at Golgotha, they laid the crossbeam down. And some accounts, or some, from, some of those from history indicate that the Roman soldier placed his knee at the wrist so it couldn't be moved. And they would, con they would continue to drive the nails into his hands, attaching him to the crossbeam. In a way of some study of controversy, as it were, and throughout history, of where the nails were actually nailed. Uh, and some historians have recorded for us that the place that's called in our hands, the place of distote, it's an area in, the, in, our, in our hands where there is uh, not a section of bone, it's a small place. And this is where the large median nerve that provides the sensations through our arm and our hand is located. And it also runs up the, through our wrist. So if the nails were ha would have been nailed through Jesus' hand, the middle of his hand, in the place of distote, as well as being one possibility of being tied to the cross to support his weight on the cross, or the nail could have been driven through his wrist between the two bones in the wrist. Now likely that would have provided the most support. Again, we're not told if ropes were used, but history records for us that they were at times alone to provide support. But going back to the median nerve running up through the wrist and the hand, with that nail going through it, piercing it, that would have severed it. And the amount of pain that would have went through the arms and hands of our master is an absolutely mind-numbing thought. Not only had been, he had been scourged in the way he was, but now he had nails in his hands. And then the Roman soldiers would then continue to affix the crossbeam to the vertical post in the ground. And then they would cross 
his feet near his ankle near his ankle area and not a, and a long nail was driven through both feet the picture here on the on this slide is my attempt to what likely to show you what likely some of those roman crucifixion nails would have looked like And in verse, verses 23 and 24, continuing on, after Pilate had wrote the title of the cross of, up above Jesus and put it on the cross, in verse 19 that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And we all remember that was written in Hebrew, Greek, and in Latin. And then the soldiers would continue to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, as it were. They rent Jesus of his garment, and verse 24 indicates to us that they cast lots for it. They basically gambled his clothing. And of course, that fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy, as that's recorded in verse 24. But it's interesting to me to note, as well as I'm sure for you as well, that the only possession that our Lord ever owned was the clothing on his back. And while he hung there, suspended between heaven and earth, it was gambled right before him. Because we all remember Jesus didn't own a house. He didn't own any possessions. He, he had come now to do what the Father had sent him to do. And this next slide is my attempt to show you what likely Jesus would have looked like while hanging there on the cross. If not for this, my friend, and the resurrection, we would have no hope of salvation. The Christian life or a hope of eternity in heaven and yet the majority of our world rejects this they reject Christ they reject God they reject his word and they reject all the blessings that come with being a member of his body a member of the church and even those that have come become a member of the church they being entangled in the world, entangled in sin, habitually, ongoing, entangled in their possessions. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus speaking tells us, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And it's not wrong for us to own houses or cars or to have money, but again, it's a matter of priority in life. We have to seek the kingdom first, my friend. We have to allow the crucifixion to always be on the forefront of our thinking, as well as the resurrection and what it did for us. And one more note on this slide before we continue our study tonight. As there was a documentary on the crucifixion that was put out by the History Channel, and a professor got a group of students together and 
wanted to learn about the physical condition on the cross. And so he, he made likely what the cross would have been like, and he put harnesses and strapped one of the volunteers into the harnesses with their arms stretched out like, it, like Jesus would have been, and their feet was placed in a, hol- in a holster. And when the nails were driven into Jesus' feet, remember that his knees were bent because the Romans wanted, didn't want death to come too soon. So in order to get air for, to allow Jesus to breathe, he would have to have pushed against those nails to raise his body up to allow air into the lungs and, of course, slump back down to exhale. But in the course of this study, the student that was the volunteer that was doing this could only remain in that position at a safe level without it affecting his heart rate too severely for 15 minutes. 15 minutes versus six hours that our master hung there in agony. And of course, as he would continue to push on those nails, inhaling and exhaling, he would rub, his back would be rubbed against the back of the cross, opening those wounds up from the scourging earlier. And amazingly, the seven things he spoke from, from the cross, still in that condition, and that horrendous torture and agony and pain still teaching lessons to us. And that brings us to our next slide, the love of God. In John chapter 3, verse 16, probably one of the most famous New Testament passages, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, We each know that very well. And I think we'll we'll tie into some of these things in our next lesson as well on looking at the prophecies that were made as well as the devil's power being crushed. Before tonight, we'll jump on to the next slide and look at what the crucifixion did for you and I today. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, one of the most notable passages of the church is noted. And it says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Jesus purchased the church, and it is that body that we can be a part of today. It is in existence. He purchased it without blemish, as we're told in Ephesians 5. And also another description that Jesus delivers to us before the trial even began. If you would turn back with me to John chapter 17. We're given a powerful truth about the oneness of Jesus and the Father, the oneness of the church. John chapter 17. We'll begin reading in verses 17 
through 21. Now this is Jesus speaking. His intercessory, intercessory prayers, it's noted, to, to the Father before the prayer in Gethsemane. Jesus speaking here says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for, for, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, previously in that prayer, Jesus had prayed for the work of his apostles. He had prayed for the work that they would do concerning the start of the church, as it's revealed for us in Acts chapters 1 and 2. But coming to these verses here, these, this prayer, this section of this prayer, touches you and I, even today. Again, neither I pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Again, anybody who would ever believe from that time onward throughout all the generations that were to come, they had to be one in the Father, verse 21. As the Son is as I in thee, Jesus says, that thou also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That phrase Jesus says, that they may also be one in us. May I say this teaching here flies in the face of denominationalism. It flies in the face of opinion opinions as the religious world sees them. And anything else that has it's done in the name of religion, but with no authority, is an absolute blaspheme to the God of heaven. To add to that, John chapter 17, I'm sorry, Second John chapter 1 verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Wouldn't you love it if our religious world, denominational teachings, could appreciate a verse like that? Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. But we can be one in the Father, with the, with the Father and the Son, if we continue to strive in His will and do that, what he has commanded us to do, all going back to the crucifixion and its benefits for us. So for tonight, as we come to the close of our lesson and the close of this part four series in the series, have you, have you obeyed the gospel and are now lost? With the crucifixion in mind, it is said in Hebrews chapter 6, Verses 5 and 6, it is possible 
if those that have obeyed the gospel and are have fallen away, given to sin, habitually, ongoing, they won't repent of it, or they become consumed in the world. It's said there that spiritually they are crucifying the Son of God afresh. Friend, are you and I doing that tonight? Do you know in your heart you're doing that? This scene, as it occurred so many years ago, still holds true. Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Before we close tonight, I do have a, a message of song I would like to read for you. This song is typically sung at some congregations throughout the brotherhood before the Lord's Supper is prepared. And it details the crucifixion in its entirety. It's entitled, How Deep the Father's Love, and it reads like this. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which, which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon, upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. That's a beautiful song, a beautiful message that, in, that details the entirety of the crucifixion and the benefit it, benefits it has for us. For tonight, if you have never obeyed the gospel, and never obeyed and become a member of that one body that Jesus died for, you can. It can be done in a matter of moments. It's required of you that you must hear the word, Romans 10, 17. You must believe that Jesus came. He is the Son of God, and that he did, he did live a perfect life and die that death. He did. You must repent of the sins in your life, leaving them, not striving to do them anymore, turning them aside, Luke chapter 13, 3. You must confess his name as the Son of God, Romans 10, 10, 9. And finally, you must be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. And he'll add you to the church. You will then put him on in baptism and strive for the rest of your life to live as a faithful Christian. And heaven will, will be yours, of course, if you remain faithful until death, Revelation 2, 10. But maybe you've done that at one time, and it can be said of you that you are crucifying the Son of God afresh. You have sins in your life. You know it. Maybe others know it. Come down this aisle tonight. We'll pray for you. Don't reject the crucifixion any longer. If we can help you in these ways tonight, we ask how we can do it, even now, while together we stand and while we sing.